ist. It is 1700 hours in traffic and time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I am with Onelentinti who will have a news shortly. Wissani Matabula has your economy news and Figile Lengwadi has your sports this afternoon. Your top stories, a follow-up investigation expected on atrocities in the Central African Republic between 2013 and 2015. Muslims from around the world are fasting from the sunrise to sunset to observe the month of Ramadan. In economics, Kenya's biggest telecoms company joins up with a local software firm to launch a ride-hailing company to take on Uber. In sports, FIFA hands Bafana Bafana lowly seeding in 2018 World Cup draw. But first, the news with Onel and Zinzi. Thank you, Spoo, and greetings to our listeners. Ugandan long-time ruler Yoweri Museveni has dropped at least 35 ministers from his incoming government. After clinching a controversial election victory early this year, the veteran leader announced his new cabinet on Monday, picking his wife Janet Kataha as the new education and sports minister. According to reports, the education ministry is usually the co- a coveted portfolio in Uganda as it takes the largest chunk of the annual budget. Human rights lawyer and political commentator Andrew Karamagi was quoted in the news as saying that the new cabinet selection criteria appeared based on a need to balance varied ethnic and religious interests to maintain a broad base of political support. Kenya's opposition has softened its rejection of a presidential initiative to end a dispute over an electoral oversight body. The opposition has been staging almost weekly protests against the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, which it says is too biased to oversee a fair vote in 2017. In a bid to resolve the dispute, President Uhuru Kenyatta proposed on Wednesday the sitting up of a bipartisan committee in Parliament to discuss the issue saying this would meet the demand for dialogue as well as adhere to constitutional rules. After rejecting the idea on Wednesday, opposition leader Rela Odinga spokesman Dennis Onyango moderated his position following talks on Thursday between the opposition and church leaders who are acting as mediators. Media houses throughout Malawi have reportedly been urged to halt coverage regarding albino attacks in the country. While government and various other organizations sought ways to curb the scourge of attacks on albino nationals, the Malawi Health Equity Network says that a blackout on reports regarding attacks would help reduce the number of fatalities. MHEN Executive Director George Jobe claimed that daily reports on albino attacks helped fuel the crisis and should be stopped with immediate effect. South Africa will enter into an amended treaty on extradition with Botswana. The decision was announced by South Africa's minister in the presidency, Jeff Khadebe, in the capital, Pretoria. Khadebe says this will enhance cooperation between South Africa and Botswana on extradition requests received from Khabarone in cases where the death penalty is a possible sentence.
This underscores that South Africa will not be a safe haven for criminals by providing for this extradition of fugitives and to facilitate the effectiveness of law enforcement authorities in the prevention, investigation and prosecution of crime. So this treaty between South Africa and Botswana is trying to resolve that issue where if there's a person who's facing capital punishment in Botswana, in terms of this treaty, that person will not be executed. And finally, the South African National AIDS Council says the adoption of a political declaration to accelerate AIDS response in the next five years gives a new boost in to the fight against the pandemic. South Africa will focus on preventing new HIV infections in young girls and high-risk groups like sex workers, gay men, and injecting drug users. This has emerged as global leaders converged at the UN General Assembly to discuss HIV AIDS. Farid Abdullah is from the South African AIDS Council. To have a formal declaration adopted by 193 countries really gives uh, the HIV response a new boost. Uh, Now that we have the political backing for all these projects, in Durban we need to provide the detail of how we're going to actually go and implement those things. We have done so well in South Africa, especially on treatments and on prevention of HIV transmission in pregnancy, and really the whole world has recognized here. Uh, The Minister of Health has been the star of the show here. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Tsinsi. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Onele. It's 17.06 Central African Time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's start in the Central African Republic, where following a report by Human Rights Watch, the United Nations has told journalists that it will follow up and further investigate atrocities carried out by Congo Brazzaville troops in the Central African Republic from 2013 to 2015. Some of the atrocities were allegedly carried out by the Congolese soldiers while they served with the UN multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in the Central African Republic, MINUSCA, which falls under the agencies of the African Union, the AU. A report released earlier this week by the rights group said a grave exhumed near a peacekeeping base in Boali in the Central African Republic uncovered the remains of 12 people allegedly detained by the peacekeepers. On in March 2014, but now, after more than three years of the worst crisis in its history, the Central African Republic starts a new chapter under President Tuadera Luisa Marge, Africa researcher. Rather, under President Tuadera, Louis March is an Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch, and he says the odds are good that the situation of stability will continue. I think that the odds for the Central African Republic are better now than ever of becoming a more stable and functional country. And that's because for the first time in generations, this country is finally getting the attention, the international attention it deserves. 
you have a country, as you say, that's gone through coup after coup, protracted crisis after protracted crisis. And with this latest crisis, when the country was turned upside down, when war crimes were being committed, I mean, international criminal courts investigating these are serious crimes. Finally, collectively, the UN, the international community, which includes the French, decided, all right, enough's enough. We have to try to stabilize this place. So despite all of the problems, all the challenges ahead, you have 12,000 peacekeepers on the ground. You have major international institutions like the World Bank and the IMF who are ready to step in and to start supporting the country. You have a democratically elected president now. He was elected at the end of March of this year, which is a big deal for the CAR because they've only had one democratic election before that since independence. So that's that's very that's a very big deal. So the conditions are challenging, but they're they're right and they're good for for this country to start to finally get on the right track. Now, as you see, the Central African Republic is entering a new chapter, you know, in its story. Elections were held at the start of the year without major incident and Faustin Tudera assumed office a few months ago. Now, obviously, like you say, the political and security challenges he will have to face are huge. What strategies do you think can help Faustin Tudera to break with the mistakes of his predecessors? Sure, sure. I think what uh, President Troidera needs to do, and and the indications are good, Mm -hmm. but what he needs to do is he needs to send a very strong message to warlords and to would-be spoilers that the days are over of you simply threatening to take up the gun and to go into the bush and hold those individuals who are responsible for the latest violence accountable. And the indications are are good that he's going to do that. The fact of the matter is, is that the cycle in Central African Republic of all this violence, all these killings and rapes and these horrible things, it actually is linked up to impunity. And if you want to start a group in the Central African Republic, historically, all you had to do was raise a few thousand dollars, get some arms, which is very easy to come by in this country. This has got Chad, Sudan, South Sudan, Democratic Republic of Congo on its borders. Very easy to procure a gun. So all you had to do was raise some money and raise a few men and start a little rebellion. And then all you had to do was fight your way to the negotiating table. And what he's done with his new cabinet that he's appointed and the indications that he's made is that those days are over. Uh, You cannot negotiate with the gun if you want to be in involved in this country's future, it has to be through the political process. And that's a really encouraging sign. And the International Criminal Court, the ICC prosecutor, has apparently, from what I gather, continued investigations that were started in September 2014 into war crimes yeah. and crimes against humanity. And then there's these steps that have been taken towards the establishment of a special criminal right, court. Right in the national justice system. Now, what is going to happen here? Will those involved or implicated in acts of human rights abuses be tried by the ICC or the Special Criminal Court? Great question. Great question because it's a bit confusing. So you have two things happening simultaneously. You have the International Criminal Court Mm -hmm. and you have the Special Criminal Court. And as we all know, the International Criminal Court is a very difficult court to work with. It takes a long, long time. And it costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And thus far, I, you know, I'm a supporter of the International Criminal Court, and I can critique it. But the fact of the matter is it's only prosecuted a few people. And in the Central African Republic, realistically, the International Criminal Court is only going to get probably two or three of the big fish. The crimes that have been committed since December 2012 are very, very serious, and there's a lot of actors. And what the transitional government under Catherine Sambapanza, what they did was they recognized that their judicial system is too weak to take the other cases. 
justice. So they set up this special criminal court with the UN. And this is really interesting. This is an African court. This is the first time this has ever happened in Africa. It will be a Central African court, but it'll have a lot of international support. So you'll have an international prosecutor. And by most uh, indications, it's going to be a West African. You'll have international judges. The majority of judges will be Central African, but some judges will be international. And you'll have international investigation teams working alongside national counterparts. Mm -hmm. So that will reinforce the capacity of the national structure, but it's also going to give it a degree of legitimacy because this is a country where nepotism, corruption are huge problems. The judiciary was very, very much compromised uh, leading into the crisis. It's one of the reasons why there was this impunity that we just talked about. So that's going to give this court this legitimacy. It's going to give it the independence that it needs to go after these leaders. And, you know, we're really crossing our fingers that this court's going to get off the ground. It has a $15 million budget. It's almost there per year. It's almost there for the first year. So we're hoping that the investigations will start by the end of the year. Um, and, and we're watching it very closely. Do you happen to know who are the perpetrators? Are they all from Central African Republic or are there some from outside? Like, for instance, Chad, Sudan, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely some outsiders involved. Yeah, there really are. There's um, Chadians yes. uh, and Sudanese. The Seleka, when they took power in March 2013, when they started in 2012, they were a coalition of rebel groups. So this was a lot of different rebel groups, some of them Janjaweed elements from Sudan, some of them Chadian mercenaries who got involved. And I myself, I would be, you know, in southern Central African Republic in 2013, 2014, and I'd start trying to have a conversation with someone and he'd start speaking English and he's from Khartoum in Sudan, you know. So clearly these were not Central Africans we're dealing with. So it's going to be complicated. There's a lot of international implications to this rebel group. It's not only the Seleka, the anti-Balaka militias also committed egregious acts, and those are primarily Central African. But prosecutions will have an international flavor to them, if if you will. That is Louis Mudge, who is a researcher, Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch, speaking to Josejo Dengake. Now, in a powerful address to the United Nations General Assembly, Ndaba Mandela has invoked the legacy of his late grandfather, former South African President Nelson Mandela, as he appealed to the global community to ensure that all 37 million people living with HIV today can immediately access antiretroviral treatment. The younger Mandela, who is also founder and chairman of Africa Rising, was addressing the opening segment of a high-level meeting on the subject to rally the globe to increase investment in the next five years to set the course for ending the epidemic by 2030. The Assembly immediately adopted a political declaration to accelerate a global action. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Ndaba Mandela, Chairman and Co-Founder of Africa Rising Foundation. He'd come to continue the legacy of his grandfather and called on the Assembly to ensure that the 34 million people who have died of AIDS, including his father Mahato, who passed in 2005, did not die in vain. My grandfather was not afraid of the truth. Nelson Mandela instead spoke out loudly and with dignity. His only surviving son, Mahato Lawanika Mandela, had died of AIDS. Madiba was determined that his only son would not die in silence and in vain. This was the beginning of a national dialogue on AIDS in South Africa and a global action around the world. Ndaba Mandela urged action to ensure that vulnerable groups, 
LGBTI people, sex workers, drug users and migrants among others no longer have to live in the shadows and the stigma still associated with HIV in many countries. I'm here to ask leaders of the 35 countries that still don't allow foreigners living with HIV to enter or reside within their countries to end travel restrictions now. Because the truth is that building walls or denying visas is not how we protect ourselves from HIV <laughs> or end a global epidemic. Bigotry and fear do nothing but spread the virus. He called on delegates to make history. It has been 11 years since my father passed away. And although I am older now, I still want him to be proud. I would have loved to see the look on his eyes today as I address the opening of this historical meeting in this historical place. Today, the eyes of millions living with HIV are on us. They are counting on us today as we launch this high-level meeting. They are counting on us to make an unprecedented commitment to the end of AIDS. And they are counting on us to keep our promise. Let us make history. Let us make them proud. As the great Nelson Mandela said, it is in our hands. It is so decided. The Assembly shortly afterwards committed to accelerate investments to fast-track the global response over the next five years. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. For Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Your time is 17.18 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You can find us on Twitter where we are on Channel Africa 1 and it's info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za on email. Now Muslims from around the world are fasting from sunrise to sunset to celebrate Ramadan, the most sacred month on the Islamic calendar. In Cameroon, Christians and animists are joining Muslims for the evening meal to promote religious tolerance in the country at a time of tension sparked by deadly attacks carried out by the terrorist group Boko Haram in the northern part of the country. Moki Kinzaga met people of various denominations praying and sharing evening meals with Muslims and sent us this report. Hundreds of people have gathered here to join Muslims praying and breaking their day's fast at the Islamic complex that hosts the largest mosque in Cameroon's capital city, Yaoundé. 
Among them is Charles Zobo, an elder at the Yaoundé Cathedral Parish of the Catholic Church. They treat everybody equally because uh, I, for example, am a Christian. When we finish the first part of uh, the meal, uh, Christians remain while the Muslims go in for prayer. When they come back, we all go again for the supper. The message is just one, let Cameroon remain same, Christians and Muslims to live together. We should not discriminate and uh, we pray for a better Cameroon. Muhammadu Labarang, secretary of the mosque and the day's preacher, says it is a tradition for them to keep their doors open for both Christians, animists and interested Muslims every evening until the fasting period is over. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala nabi wa rahmatullahi alamin Muhammad ibn Abdullah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Il y a le déjeuner collectif qui se passe ici he says they share collective meals in respect of the Holy Quran's prescription that faithful should share so as to have favors and blessings from God. He says the message they are also passing is that there should be peace and they are thanking God that there is peace in Cameroon and peaceful coexistence between Muslims and non-Muslims. Joseph Ndinga, a notable from the traditional ruler's palace at Tinga, Yaoundé, where the mosque is situated, says he sees in the initiative positive plans to consolidate peace and stop religious extremism Cameroon has been experiencing in the northern part of its country with followers of the terrorist group Boko Haram. It's really promoting interreligious tolerance because Muslims and Christians in Cameroon, they do cohabit. It is African tradition. If somebody is either enjoying or in pain, there's that aspect of that. You go to your brother or your sister, be it whether she's uh, having something bad or something good. But not all Muslims share that view. Cleric Sanusi Mota of the Itudi Mosque in Yaoundé says it is unacceptable for infidels who do not accept Allah's teaching to be invited at table with those who strive to live as recommended in the Holy Quran. On ne peut pas faire une invitation spéciale à quelqu'un qui n'a pas gêné vient on casse le gêne comme son nom même l'indique. He says it is religiously incorrect to share a meal with someone who has not obeyed the Holy Quran's instruction to fast. He says Ramadan is a period of adoration and submission to Allah and is urging everyone to obey divine recommendations. D'observer davantage les recommandations divines. But for the northern parts of the Central African state that has suffered Boko Haram terrorism for three years, Cameroon has a history of interreligious tolerance and peaceful coexistence. Cameroon has, over the years, arrested dozens of Muslim clerics and their faithful for collaborating with the terrorist group whose adherence to the Islamic State sparked fears the country may come under the influence of extremists. 20 to 25 percent of the population of Cameroon is Muslim, 40 percent Christian, and the rest hold indigenous beliefs. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé. Access to quality health care systems across Africa needs to improve in order to reduce the high prevalence of non-communicable diseases, or NCDs, on the continent. This is according to Dr. Sarah Barber, the World Health Organization representative in South Africa and speaker at the 6th Annual Health Exhibition and Congress 2016, which is underway in Johannesburg. Barber says factors such as tobacco 
and the harmful use of alcohol are contributing to the prevalence of NCDs on the continent. NCDs are showing alarming signs of increase in the African region. The NCDs are driven primarily by four behavior risk factors, tobacco use, harmful use of alcohol, physical inactivity, and unhealthy diet. So if we look at these four risk factors, we're seeing an increase in tobacco use, for example. Across the globe, there are only two regions in the world that we're seeing an increase in smoking prevalence. In the African region, it's projected that we're going to see smoking rates increase among men to as high as 45% by 2025. We see, although there's a variation across the regions, across the countries in, in Africa, we see uh, high rates of harmful use of alcohol, and we're seeing alarming increases in the number of overweight children in the African region, doubling since 1990 to over 8 million children. And these children are very likely to grow up with problems of overweight as adolescents and adults. Now, Doctor, you say that you're seeing an increase in the prevalence of NCDs in the African region. What has been the impact of these diseases in many of the countries on the continent? Well, correspondingly, we're seeing, we're starting to see elevated blood pressure levels across the continent in Africa. We're seeing increases in diabetes prevalence. We see that diabetes prevalence exceeds 5 to 10% in many countries in the African region already. Alarmingly, we're also seeing that the probability of death before the age of 70 years is higher in the African region than all of the regions in the world except the Southeast Asian region. And this suggests that, for example, the people who do suffer from NCDs in the African region are not getting the care and treatment. They're not effectively managing their blood pressure. They're not effectively controlling NCDs. How prepared do you think health systems in Africa are to manage NCD conditions? Well, there are two things we emphasize. We emphasize the health systems issues to be able to manage patients that are already suffering from non-communicable diseases. And I think that the health systems in, in the African region have been primarily focused on communicable diseases. So they've been providing acute care, and this is not uh, the model we need for chronic non-communicable disease conditions. We need to try to reorient our health systems so that we can manage patients effectively with chronic conditions. We have referral systems. We have linkages to peripheral facilities to provide rehabilitative care, advice for diet, exercise. The health systems are not yet prepared to manage these types of NCD conditions in general. We also know that one of our most important activities is to prevent non-communicable diseases. We know how to prevent non-communicable diseases. We need to implement uh, tobacco control measures to make sure that people don't start smoking, particularly youth, given the, the large numbers of young people that we're going to see. Africa will be a young population, or 30% of the population across Africa uh, between the ages of 10 and 24 until about 2030. So we have a young population, and we're going to have to start investing in creating environments for these young people so that they make healthy choices, so that they don't start smoking, so that they don't start using alcohol at very young ages and develop harmful patterns of alcohol use. But are there countries, doctor, that have recognized the importance of dealing with these diseases urgently, you know, putting in place policies and programs? Sure, I think that South Africa is really a great example. They've started with the risk factors and they've focused very much on prevention and realization that the burden of NCDs on the health system could be enormous in the future if we don't start preventing risk factors. So they have, for example, strong tobacco control measures. The Minister of Health 
relatives just announced his plans to implement much stronger restrictions on advertising and promotion of tobacco and implement what we call plain packaging. It's a cigarette package where you have a health warning in words and a picture, neutral health warning, so that the tobacco package is not used to advertise tobacco. He's talking about completely abolishing smoking areas in public places, removing cigarette vending machines that enable children to buy cigarettes. We're also looking at strong policies to reduce the harmful use of alcohol across South Africa. And the National Department of Health and the Department of Trade and Industry have put forward proposals to restrict the location of alcohol sales, to restrict the hours and days in which alcohol can be sold. All of these policies can help to reduce the harmful use of alcohol. What has been your role as the World Health Organization in tackling these diseases, often referred to as silent killers? Well, the WHO has a number of core functions where we try to engage partners for joint action. So we look at all the stakeholders and we try to bring them together to make sure that um, all the key players are involved in non-communicable disease prevention and control. This doesn't involve only the health sector. It involves trade and industry. It involves youth, education, all sorts of sectors. And civil society plays a critical role. So we need to try to engage partnerships for joint action. We try to share what's going on globally. All sorts of countries are suffering from non-communicable diseases, and we need to learn the mistakes from these countries so that we don't make the same mistakes across the African region and to try to get ahead of this NCD problem before it becomes even larger. We have programs of work to support the effective management for the four main non-communicable diseases, cardiovascular diseases, cancers, diabetes, respiratory diseases, so that their health systems can more effectively manage these diseases. And we provide support to public health policies, uh, fiscal measures to address tobacco consumption, harmful use of alcohol, as well as policies that can reduce overweight and obesity. That is Dr. Sarah Baba, the World Health Organization representative in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Litecha. Some for news headlines with Onel Nzinzi. Ugandan long-time ruler Yoweri Museveni has dropped at least 35 ministers from his incoming government. Kenya's opposition has softened its rejection of a presidential initiative to end a dispute over an electoral oversight body. And media houses throughout Malawi have reportedly been urged to hold coverage regarding albino attacks in the country. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilinsinsi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
Your time is 17.31 Central African time. Thank you very much, Onele, for the news update. The, now, the flagship program of American President Barack Obama's Youth African Leaders Initiative starts today in Johannesburg, South Africa. The three-day conference brings together just over 100 young leaders from 14 countries in the region who participated in the U.S.-based academic and leadership institutes and presidential summits last year. The aim of the conference is to discuss how the experience has impacted their work and share best practices on fostering sustainable development for future of for the future of Africa. Eldon Chilembo is a Yale fellow from Angola. I set up a Women in International Shipping and Trading Association in Angola. And what we really do with WISTA is we're trying to promote the participation of women in the maritime industry. We're trying to make sure that businesses and governments work together a lot more. Um, we focus on women in management positions, given as mentors for the young shipping professionals out there. And even though it's a women's organization, it's very inclusive of both men and women, especially the mentorship angle that's for all young shipping professionals. What motivated you to um, establish a women in shipping specifically um, initiative? Um, Is it also an industry that most women are uh, perhaps interested in? That's exactly what motivated me, the fact that it was predominantly male and started out as a business major. I went to business school, and in the third year, I wanted something else challenging. So I thought, women in shipping, I could do that. I mean, not everyone was, and especially for Angola, we did not have any women going out to sea. And so I wanted to be able to actually um, go into an industry where I could invite more women to join me and just to uh, promote their employment and participation. So I, I, I always, I've always been, I, I, I've never really wanted to go the conventional way. I always wanted to do something that everyone else wasn't doing, and this was one of the things. And I didn't realize it until I, I actually went into maritime that I loved being out at sea. I loved being in maritime. And it stuck. And what would you say is the state of the maritime or shipping industry in Angola at the moment? It's growing. We definitely have a lot of space to actually, um, that we could leverage. We have, right now, Angola, for example, is, sits in the UN Security Council. We have hosted a lot of maritime security um, conferences. And so we actually have a lot to give within the maritime space. We import and export almost 90% of everything um, into Angola, so we are definitely dependent on maritime and cargo ships coming into the country. We have a really strong uh, maritime sector that we could strengthen even more. Is very international, and we don't have a lot of Angolans that have already bought into the idea of going out to sea and being maritime. So there's a lot of space there for growth. There's a lot of space for us to actually um, home that industry and the opportunities that are in the maritime sector. And so it's one industry to definitely watch in Angola. Mm. And also now talking about, um, you know, women equality and women in uh, um, leadership positions, um, how is this specific sector faring? We know that, of course, your organization is one which seeks to really give a platform for women in, in, in management positions and to mentor young women uh, so that you can be able yeah. to promote those public-private uh, partnerships. How would you say Angola is faring and, and specifically with reference to the shipping industry in terms of women equality? 
worldwide, the industry is, like I already said, very predominantly male. So of the 1.6 million speakers that we have, only 2.5% are women. So we need to get those numbers up. So this is not just an issue in Angola, this is an issue around the globe. A lot of people don't understand how important the maritime industry is to everything because this is the entire world depends on the maritime industry, depends on the ships that bring the exports and cars and everything to your country. But we don't realize it. It's this forgotten industry. And so what organizations like mine are trying to do is try to bring that to light, to bring to, to share that with people and have people understand the importance of this industry. And then also then we can we could also start working with the other issues, which is trying to promote more women and encourage more women to even just buy into the, the idea of becoming maritime professionals. And I think Angola is well positioned for this task because we've had a really good history of um uh, gender empowerment in Angola. We have a lot of women who are in in high-level positions in Angola within the government, uh, private sector. Our ambassador to the International IM Maritime Organization, the IMO, is female, and she's very much very much a part of WISTA. She's very she's full of so much energy and so much inspiration, and she really wants to work with bringing more women up to the join up into the private sector in, in shipping and trading. So what we have right now that's lacking in Angola is more women in the private sector. We have a lot of women in government, and the government's done a really good job of promoting the women there, but now we need to have more women in private sector. Now tell us about your participation in the Young African Leaders Initiative and what you really hope to, you know, to, to achieve or take from, from the initiative. You know, um, let me just say I can't thank the Mandela Washington Fellowship enough. I can't thank their partner, Zyrex. I can't thank the State Department enough for even bringing, like, I don't know if you know this, but this is our reunion conference and just bringing us together again and fellows and together to collaborate and to a lot of collaborations, obviously, networks, uh, cross-border collaborations, working with people you never thought you might work. It's, it's interesting that sometimes we work in different sectors and we don't understand that various sectors can actually come together and and help achieve the same goals and the same uh, projects that you have. That is Eldin Chilembo, a Youth African Leader, is Initiative Fellow from Angola, talking to Kumuto Mopulane. If high commodity prices alone drove recent advances in Africa, the prospects for further gains seem dim. Stephen Radlett says the reality is more complex and the outlook is more varied from many than many now suggest. Radlett's article, Africa's Rise Interrupted, is published in the June 2016 issue of Finance and Development magazine. He elaborates. It's been very significant although it hasn't reached everyone. And it is not surprising that millions of Africans would still say they haven't been reached because they haven't. But that does not change the case that millions of Africans have been reached uh, in a couple of different ways. Income levels have risen by 75% in real terms since the early 1990s. The level of conflict and war has diminished significantly. So there's much less conflict and violence. There's been a spread of democracy, so basic rights are honored far more than they used to be. Millions more children are in school, especially girls. Girls' enrollment rates have gone way up. 
And more than anything else, health has improved quite dramatically. In every single country in sub-Saharan Africa, the rate of child death has fallen over the last three decades. There are no exceptions. So while not everyone has been reached, millions have. And for those people, lives have been improved in significant ways. What we need to do now is continue that progress and to spread it to those that haven't been reached. So there's no denying that the, the game has changed dramatically in less than two years much because of the falling commodity prices. How would you define the legacy of the commodity boom? The commodity boom helped uh, drive the surge of progress, but it was not the fundamental factor. In fact, Africa's rise began uh, seven or eight years before commodity prices rose. It actually, countries began to turn around in the early and mid-1990s. The commodity boom really didn't start until 2002. So right there, that tells you that there's something more that has undergirded this progress. Uh, and the more fundamental factors are the improvement in governance, uh, the movement uh, away from dictatorship towards democracy, uh, alongside the improvement and in, in the strengthening of human capacity, where the technical leadership, economic policies, social policies are just much better than they were uh, in the 1980s. Countries are more integrated into global trade and, and have more uh, access to information and ideas, and most importantly, technology than they did 20 years ago. Those are the fundamental drivers. On top of that, when commodity prices started to go up, those certainly helped in some countries. In other countries, they mattered much less. Uh, but fundamentally, it was the other factors that were more powerful. And I think that's what bodes well for the future. The commodity price fall is certainly not helpful for many countries, but those fundamental factors are going to persist into the future. And you write about uh, one of the benefits uh, from this strong growth in recent years has been, you know, that, that there are a lot of more skilled leaders and better trained ministries and better governance, uh, perhaps less corruption. Um, how much of this might you attribute to uh, foreign aid and uh, how much of it might just be sort of a natural progression in, in a strong business environment? So foreign aid was an important secondary factor. It's not the prime driver of this progress, um, but it's been an important contributor. Uh, the prime drivers, again, have been this change in capacity, the strengthening of education, the, the far more skilled leadership, and the change in the global environment that has moved us and the former Soviet Union away from holding up dictators and allowing people to choose their own leaders and hold them accountable. The access to technologies, whether they be uh, agricultural technologies or health technologies, those are, are very key. Foreign aid has helped support this process in a couple of important ways. Again, in health, um, access to vaccines, access to antiretrovirals for HIV AIDS, access to bed nets to fight malaria, uh, all of those have been supplied in large part by aid agencies. Um, and the dramatic improvements that we've seen in health are not solely due to aid, but there's no question in anyone's mind, really, that uh, that funding from aid agencies has helped stimulate that improvement in health and get that access as widespread as it as it has been. But it's been aid coupled with local heroes, doctors and nurses, mothers that bring their kids to get them vaccinated, uh, and all the workers that uh, that have done so much at the local level to make that health a success. So that's what I mean when I say that aid is a secondary and supporting factor, not the primary driver. Beyond uh, health, aid has also helped in terms of 
of agriculture, help supply new technologies, help uh, provide funding for agricultural extension services. Aid funds have helped build more infrastructure, uh, roads and power. There are still huge shortages, no doubt about it, um, but uh, aid funding has really helped build that infrastructure, especially in places coming out of war, Uganda, Mozambique, Liberia, and West Africa, uh, and they were able to get back up on their feet because aid agencies help provide that that infrastructure. So uh, there are other examples that's helped in education and other things. But we need to move away from uh, from the debate that aid is either completely a waste uh, or the savior and the main driver. And it's it's neither of those. It's a it's a supporting important secondary factor in this surge of progress. And you also write about uh, a growing human capital skills base. Uh, do you believe that uh, there is, in fact, the, the potential for what people are calling the, the demographic dividend? And what do you think it would take to make that happen? I very strongly believe that there is the potential for this demographic dividend to pay off. Uh, that's not quite the same as, as strongly believing that it will happen. Uh, the potential is there, the opportunity is there, but the growing youth bulge, which is a big part of the demographic dividend, can either be helpful or not, depending on whether or not the right kinds of policies and institutions and approaches are put into place to take advantage of that demographic change. Where it has been successful, broadly in Southeast Asia, that went through a similar demographic change uh, three decades ago, uh, a combination of investments in school systems to give people basic skills, uh, and then a movement towards uh, building the infrastructure necessary to support manufacturing, and a change in policies that led to manufacturing and services growth, led to opportunities for millions of jobs to be created. So as this youth bulge uh, grew into into young, adult, uh, young adulthood and were ready to take on jobs, the jobs were there by and large. And that was a key driver in propelling East Asia forward and to some extent Latin America forward as well. Uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, if the right investments are made in education systems and infrastructure and the right kind of policy actions are taken um, uh, to facilitate uh, diversification into manufacturing and services, then the demographic dividend can pay off and we can see this uh, surge in growth continue. But if those policies are not undertaken and those investments are not made, uh, many countries face the possibility that you'll have many unemployed youth and young adults. And that's a recipe for political instability and uh, a lack of economic growth and real disenchantment. That is Stephen Redlett, director of the Global Human Development Program at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service, speaking to Bruce Edwards from the International Monetary Fund. 1745 Central African Time, he has Rusani Matewula with a scarf and your economic news.
Thanks, as Pumelele. Special Advisor at the African Development Bank, Geraldine Fraser Mlekete, has challenged the South African government to review its visa regulations again. She was speaking at the opening of the Infrastructure Africa Conference in St. Johannesburg. Fraser Mlekete says the African Union is looking at challenges cumbersome visa regulations pose for Africa in terms of the movement of goods and services. She has warned that unless uh, the continent simplifies visa regulations, progress made in infrastructure development will be wasted. Just in the organization of this meeting, we also saw the challenges around the logistics of movement of people, goods, and services, and this small thing called a visa. And uh, there's some participants we don't have here because there were challenges in terms of accessing visas just to attend this meeting. Now, just imagine the transport of the movement of people and goods and services. So if we really want to make a difference on the continent, we've got to review all that. Sector has continued to show signs of strain. Statistics South Africa's data shows that mining production decreased by 6.9% year on year in April. Economists had expected mining production to come in at minus 8.5% year on year. The largest negative contribution was iron ore, dropping by 23.4%. Other negative contributors to the contraction in mining production came from manganese ore and copper. BNP Paribas economist Jeff Schultz says the weakness in the sector is now across all commodities. The only subsectors within mining that are that showed positive year-on-year growth in April were that of coal and that of nickel. Uh, the rest are all in, in negative territory and it's led by significant falls in iron ore, platinum group metal production, as well as gold. So really it's a, it's a broad-based decline showing that uh, a depressed uh, global demand environment out there, particularly for commodities, as well as subdued commodity price outlook um, is really weighing on activity in the sector. Manufacturing output rose more than expected by 2.9% year-on-year in April after falling by 2.4% in March. Statistics South Africa says on a month-on-month basis, factory production was up 8.9%. A Reuters poll of economists expected the headline figure to show manufacturing grew by 1.3%. And urban inflation in Egypt has jumped for a second month in May, adding a pressure on the central bank to hike interest rates at its monetary policy meeting, which is coming up on June 16. Annual urban consumer price inflation jumped 12.3% in May from 10.3% in April. Food prices normally spike during the Muslim month which is the holy month of uh, Ramadan because of heavy consumption following the dawn to dusk fasting period. Ramadan has started on June the 6th. Let's look now at your financial indicators. Uh, the US dollar trading at 14.76, South African rents at 10.75, Botswana Pula, and 10.51, Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.68 to the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. Commodities uh, platinum is at uh, $1,005, uh, gold $1,262, and the spot price of Brent crude oil at $52.70 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now, back in two hours' time with uh, the final one for the day.
All right, thank you very much, Osani, for that update. He has Figile Lengwati with a hat. <laughs> First up in our sports update this hour, it's football news. South Africa have been handed a lowly seeding for the 2018 World Cup draw later this month after they were put in the third tier of sports for the groups to determine the final phase of qualification for the global showpiece. The 2018 Soccer World Cup possibilities look frightening for Bafana Bafana, the 2018 Soccer World Cup, and they will avoid a repeat meeting with the indomitable Lions of Cameroon, who they drew with home and away in March in Africa Cup of Nations qualifying rounds. They also did not play against powerful Morocco, Congo and Guinea, who are also in the same pod. FIFA have decided on the seedings based on past results and ranking points up to and including last week's Nations Cup qualifiers, where Sheikh Mashaba's charges partially redeemed themselves after a 4-0 away thumping of Gambia. The ports will be made up of Algeria, Ghana, Ivory Coast, Senegal, and Tunisia. That's port one. And port two is Cape Verde Islands, Democratic Republic of Congo, Egypt, Mali, and Nigeria. In port three, it's Cameroon, Congo, Guinea, Morocco, and South Africa. Port three, or four rather, it's Burkina Faso, Gabon, Libya, Uganda, and Zambia. And the banned UEFA president Michel Platini will be allowed to attend matches at the European Soccer Championship providing he does not do it in any official role. That's from the European Governing Body's Acting General Secretary, Theodore Theodoris. Uh, the letter says, signed by Mr. Eckert, says that Mr. Platini can be invited in a personal capacity as long as if he, that he doesn't perform any official function. So this message after the press conference will be transmitted to our executive committee and then uh, they will make a decision probably about an invitation or not from Michel Platini for the whole of the tournament. As for Friday, I don't expect that he will be there, but I just wanted to clarify this. And in athletics, with less than two months before the Rio Olympics kick off, track and field athletes in Kenya are hard at work in training to ensure adequate preparation for the global sporting showpiece. All eyes will be on the Kenyan athletes who are renowned for their prowess on the track and field, including current African and Commonwealth javelin record holder Julius Yego. Kenyan volleyball president and a member of the Kenya Olympic Committee, KOC, Waitaka Kioni, explains. Um, as, as I did mention, Kenya is a hotbed of um, talents, especially in athletics. We, Kenya is well known for long-distance runners. And uh, I believe the Kenyan athletes who have qualified for the Rio Olympics are already training hard. And uh, we expect them to perform very well. We expect them to uh, maintain the tradition where we have won uh, most of these long distance uh, races. And of course, we also expect uh, our javelin man to defend his uh, recently won uh, world championship. He's also in very good shape, and I believe he's training very well. Meanwhile, the dark cloud hanging over Kenyan athletes regarding the doping saga remains a sensitive issue. However, Kioni gave assurances that Kenyan contingent earmarked for the Rio Olympics would be World Anti-Doping Agency compliant. But I know athletics team will be there. 
I also believe, uh, I think rugby will be there. The Kenyan government did pass the water requirement into law, except that later on, I think about three weeks back, one indicated that there was, there was one or two areas which was very happy with. And uh, our National Assembly is going back looking at this, and I'm sure they will pass these uh, uh, regulations that uh, WADA is uh, uh, talking about. I'm certain that Kenya will be able to move to Rio full compliance with WADA requirements. Our government is taking that matter very, very seriously. Our National Assembly, the Parliament, is taking the matter very, very seriously. The President himself has spoken about it. The matter has been taken very, very seriously, and I'm sure we shall be compliant. The Kenyan contingent to the Olympics shall be compliant. And that's your sport news this hour. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-five Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. A follow-up investigation expected on atrocities in the Central African Republic between 2013 and 2015. Muslims from around the world are fasting from sunrise to sunset to observe a month, the month of Ramadan. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, as Pomelezoni, producer Luanda Mahomet, technical producer Dumelo Mukwena, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails on info at channelafrica. Dot and SMS plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. We are on Channel Africa One on Twitter. It's Channel Africa One on Twitter. We leave you with Tulale four 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 by Saudi Soul and Mekasa.
mailo hapa na leta maringo kama bebo kosingo simina wewe tumingo <laughs>